People of the world, hello and welcome to the Brothers Talk with your hosts, Rod, Scott, and Norm, where our purpose is a simple one. Tune into our weekly podcast each Friday, wherever you listen to your favorite programs or on this website to hear us, three black, unfiltered African-American men with no strings attached, giving voice as the most feared, most misunderstood, and most rarely heard from segment of the population on topics of interest to us for education, enlightenment, and entertainment. To reach us with your comments, questions, and suggestions, we're at The Brothers Talk on Twitter, The Brothers Talk on Instagram, the Facebook group of the same name, and if you care to share in more detail, hit us up at the email address, thebrotherstalk at gmail.com. Also, stay tuned for details about our upcoming news and perspective show on Millennium TV's M24 streaming news station. And we're back and welcome aboard for the fourth podcast. And we're just excited about all the positive feedback and information and topics that have been suggested. And so we're just looking forward to continuing the process. So Scott and Norm, say hello to the folks. Hey, I'm glad that people are continuing to support us and listen to our podcast. And we're loving the feedback that you're giving us, uh, getting a lot of positive feedback. Like I said the last time and every time, remember to buy black and ask someone that they support a black business. And uh, again, thanks for the support. And, uh, you know, look for us on television. We're going to be on N24 coming soon. All right, so let's jump right into it. One of the things that I wanted to talk about was the notion of the woke white person. I think all of us have run into these individuals who believe that wokeness is a destination instead of a process. And what we mean by that is simply that there are those who think that once you become aware of Black issues and struggles, or if you sympathize or empathize, that you get it. And that's all you really need to do is just be aware of it. That's as opposed to recognizing that once you become aware of it, you need to understand that it isn't so simple as just recognizing what it is, but you have to continuously do a deeper dive to understand how it got here and what can be done about it, and then try to consciously be about doing whatever you can to stop it. The problem with too many of our woke white friends is that they want to then push the onus of solving racism as a black issue, as opposed to recognizing that the true problem of racism starts and ends with the white mentality. Yeah, and when you talk about woke white folks, most white woke white folks consider themselves to be liberal. I think part of the problem here that, that we're having with that is that what does it mean to be liberal to them and what does it mean to be liberal for us? And being liberal, their definition of liberal, you know, I, I'm not sure. Their definition of liberal probably means that they don't think that they're racist. That probably some, some, some social injustices there that they care about, but I'm not sure. But for black folks, for me in particular, when I think about being liberal as a liberal black person, I'm thinking about, hey, I want to be able to enjoy the same freedoms as the majority population and every other group of people in this country enjoy. And I'm not sure they understand what we mean when we're talking about being liberal. You know, I see the liberals basically as like pretty much what Malcolm X said. They're pretty much what the conservatives are, except they smile in our faces. And they can say that they have a black friend or that they are, they feel for our issues in this country without taking any responsibility for them. You know, and that's how I see the liberals in this country. They're really not that much different than the conservatives. And remember what Dr. King said all those years ago that he called the white liberal the biggest impediment 
to black progress because in essence they have sometimes this patronizing attitude or oftentimes this patronizing attitude of knowing what's best for us and so we we reach these issues where the actions that are undertaken to try to correct the discriminatory practices and the racism that's been directed primarily at us are diluted because white liberals will decide that they need this big tent process that includes LGBTQI people, that includes women, that includes other nationalities. And at the end of the day, diversity ends up meaning nothing when none of those other groups have suffered to the degree that we have, nor are they owed the kind of of recompense that we are. That's why I think it's interesting even to watch the Democratic presidential candidates and their stances on reparations that, you know, if they address it at all, they pay lip service to it. And most of them tend to have this viewpoint that the rising tide will raise all the boats as though we ever had boats at the harbor in the first place. One of the, one of the, the problems too, another problem here is, like you said, Rod, they look at this, when they, when they want to approach us, they want to approach us with this big tent mentality. And when you, when you have that mentality, you're under the illusion that we're all created equal. You're under the illusion that black folks are being treated the same way as other minority groups in this country. And that's just not true. What tends to happen is that what we're fighting for is a little different than what they're fighting for. And the sacrifices that we're made, we sacrifice quite a lot more, quite a lot more than any of the other groups. When they start talking that big tent mentality, it kind of dilutes and watered down our struggle and our fight. Now, like you're talking about the on the presidential campaign, they talk about black and brown people as opposed like we're the same group and like we've had the same struggle. And like we can, as if we continue to have, have the same struggles in this country. Right. And, and that's just not true. I, I hate to actually even have to admit this, but Ann Cortler admitted how watered down the civil rights legislation enforcement has become. You know, like you just said, Scott, I mean, it's including everybody now. Yeah. When it was actually meant for our people specifically. And Rod mentioned something about rising boats. That's equated with the old adage of pull yourself up by your bootstraps when you don't have any bootstraps. You, you you just, you've just been freed from slavery. <laughs> right. Having the boots. A, a point you made, Norm, also is that, you know, you have a lot of liberals or not even necessarily liberals, but you hear white folks time and time again say that, oh, I'm not racist because I have my friend, I have a black friend, my best friend is black. Like that excludes their behavior. They don't understand that because you say that you're not racist doesn't mean that your behavior is racist. And I'm going to give you a prime example. I was in the building at work and um, I got on the elevator and I had on my badge, my work badge, and you, you can plainly see it. I got on the elevator and there was a white female already on the elevator and she just happened to be going on the floor where that I'm going on. And so I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm just standing here, I'm looking at my phone and she says, excuse me, what floor are you going to? Going to? I, I've never seen this woman in my life. I, I said, what? She said, uh, you didn't push a button. What floor you going? I said, why does it matter to you? Well, she said, I'm just, I'm just trying to help you out. I said, how are you trying to help me? Do I look like I need some help? Did I ask for your help? Well, well, you know, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to help you. I said, you know what? It sounds like to me, if you're asking everybody who get on the elevator where they're going, then you need to be an elevator operator. Other than that, you're racist. Oh, I'm not racist. I'm not racist. My, my best friend is black. I was like, okay, I don't want to hear that my best friend is black crap. 
The point of the matter is, you don't know me from Adam, and you asking me what floor I'm going on, like it's your business. And it's when she threw that, my best friend is black. Like, well, I can't be racist. But your behavior, because you're not asking everybody who get on this elevator, if they're not white, if, if they are white, you're not asking a white person what floor they're going to. Yeah, and so you have these situations where I observe an instance between a white woman and a black woman who are friends. And so the uh, white woman is one of these woke white liberals, and she is a, an attorney. And so she's standing there, and she says to the black woman, you know, I don't mean this the wrong way, but I just love the texture of your hair. Is it okay if I touch it? And, and I, I, I don't, I'm not trying to offend you or anything. And I just thought to myself, look at the blind spot of not recognizing that when you do racist behaviors, it doesn't matter what your intent is, it's still racist behavior. Bad as it was, I also watched how this, this black woman, this sister stood there and effectively allowed it to happen. And I could sort of see this sort of chagrin look on her face because she looked at me in the one instance and then kind of looked back at her friend. But it was, in my mind, it was more important for her not to offend her white friend than to suffer the embarrassment in front of me, which, you know, like I, said, I wouldn't make any big deal of, but I really was kind of taken aback that she allowed that to happen right there and that she didn't have more of a comeback to say like, you know, hey, that's a racist thing to do to ask to touch someone's hair. I don't ask you to touch your hair or anything, but that's the kind of blind spot that again, even the quote unquote liberal woke white person can have. And we also have to start challenging them and stop worrying about their feelings. Right. You know, I mean, our humanity is way more important than their feelings. And we've got to put that out there and let them know that. No, you, you're a thousand percent correct, because that is always the stumbling block to any real substantive work to be done on stamping out racism, no matter where it occurs, is that there's always this notion that you don't want to do anything that is going to offend or hurt the feelings of white Americans. And yet that then places the blame back on black America for somehow being able to solve this issue of racism. As I said earlier, I, this is one of those areas where, you know, I have to do a lot of seminars and workshops where I focus on helping people to understand how diversity and, and and inclusion needs to work. And invariably, as we talk about racism, the groups, no matter whether they're integrated or not, will always defer to the idea that racism is a black problem. And so I correct them and quickly note, no, racism is a white problem. And so I get this pushback. And so usually what I have to do is give them this analogy that helps them to understand it more clearly. And I just simply say to them, when was it ever a rape victim's job to stop the rapist? And once they look at it from, through that lens and they start to understand that the victims of racism are black people. And as the victims of racism, we do not have the power, the influence, the authority to stop those who are practicing racism. Yeah, and I think even a bigger problem is the number of supposedly woke white folks a liberal or whatever you want to call them, who are aware that racism is being perpetrated against black folks. And they want to have these per these private conversations with you to uh, describe to you what they consider to be racism and, 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 and things that they've witnessed. They will have a private conversation with you, but they are afraid to speak out and publicly about it because they're afraid that, you know, 
it's gonna it's gonna somehow impact them in a negative way, you know. Uh, so they don't want to put any skin in the game, and they want to actually prove to themselves, and I guess try to try to convince you that hey, I'm not racist because I've had this conversation with you, pointing out what I consider to be racism. And I've seen racism directed towards you or other black folks. So I'm acknowledging it is happening, but I'm only acknowledging it to you. And that's their way of getting around having to actually uh, address it publicly. But that doesn't exclude them, actually. That holds them at a, a higher standard. Right. They don't really understand that. I'm like, if you can see it and you're not dealing with it, then you're no different than the Klansmen. Yeah, you're the same. You're, you're the same. You're, you're supporting the same system that is oppressing my people. And the fact that you can say, yeah, that's wrong, that doesn't do anything. Yeah, yeah, like this guy, again, a guy I work with was talking about, we were talking about the policy of teleworking. And they have the telework policy is not administered fairly. And it's clear that white people are allowed to telework at a rate that black folks aren't allowed to telework. And he and he brought that up one day and he was talking about it. I said, well, you know, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna say something about this, you know, it's just not right. You know, I said, I'm like, yeah. I'm like, hey, you know, you, you're taking the chance. The fact that I appreciated the fact that he had the knowledge and the gall to admit that there was a double standard here and that he was willing to go to talk to uh, upper management about it. And I said, hey, you know, you might cost yourself something when you go do that. Just realize that, that hey, they may stop you from telework. So he, the fact that he had the, the, the nerve to even point it out, I was like, wow, while the rest of the folks walking around like it's normal, that, that, that it's fair, that we're administering this policy in a fair way and, and we're not. You know, and the black folks are whispering about it and, he is the only white person. White folks not even, rest of them not even acknowledge that there's a problem. And you know what? what is also kind of fascinating is that you've got certainly a number of white folks who understand that it is a process. You know, the Father Fleglers, the Tim Wise, the Jane Elliott's, Debbie Irvings, people like that who are continuously out there attempting to keep this at the front of people's consciousness. And yet what's an interesting phenomenon is each year the church that I attend in Summit, New Jersey for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day, there is a service held in which we invite a speaker in to come and share around the legacy of Dr. King. And one year we had Tim Wise. All the other years it's been black speakers who are from various social activist organizations or from different ministry segments. And always they're they're great speakers talking about the the real legacy of racism and what it has continued to do in this country. And so it is an open event attended by folks throughout the community, including white people. And so generally speaking, it's probably a third to a little more who's there that evening are white. And year after year, they're more than willing to come back and talk about the conversations and the com comments that were made by the black speakers, but not once did they ever talk about the comments that were made by Tim Wise? You never hear them talk about the comments made by Father Flagler or Debbie Irving's book, except to find this sort of dismissiveness as though they are somehow beneath them to have that conversation. You know, there's this elite level of, well, I'm here. And so he's not 
talking to me and I don't really need to listen to what Tim Wise or Father Flagler or Jane Elliott or any of those folks are talking about. And the truth of the matter is, yes, he's exactly talking to you because he's letting you know that she and he, they are one of you and they recognize the blind spots that they have. But again, that sort of elitist nature allows them to ignore it and basically try to push it back around to the idea, well, I'm okay hearing it from black people, but I don't need to hear other white people tell me about my racism. Yeah, you got you got you have the situation though, like you said, Tim Wise and others, they're in the minority. We don't have enough people like them who are out there actually addressing that whole what's what's going on with racism. Just a handful of them. And you, you mentioned something about that he elitist part of it. And I want to, you know, talk about another situation I had at, at a job where we were dealing with diversity and, and, and they were trying to get people to discuss racism and the impact of racism. And we had this group of about 70 people in the room and this one young white woman stood up and said that, you know, white people believe that black people get their job because of affirmative action, but black people believe that white people get their jobs because they're qualified and they're the best qualified. And I said, well, well, well no, no, that, that's, that's not what we think. I said, no, no, no. We think that you get your job because you are white. That's the only reason we feel that you get your job. And she kept saying to me, no, that's not true. That's not what you think. And she's telling me, that's not what I think. And that's not what black folks think. And I'm saying, look, everybody that I know, if you ask them, why a white person got a job, they'll say it's because they're white. And that just, that elitist, she couldn't even look past the fact she was, she was being being racist by saying that we're only get our job because of affirmative action. And just the elitist nature of her conversation, the fact that she's telling me that I think she get her job because she's the best boss. And, and I want to touch base on what Rod said uh, a few minutes ago. The, the elitist attitude, the elitist attitude is they're not there to be validated by white people. They're there to be validated by black people, again, so they can exclude themselves from racist or the responsibility of having to address racism. That's why they're there. Yeah, and it becomes that whole sort of patronizing thing that, again, that's what King was talking about back in the 60s, is that in essence, those same individuals who call themselves his allies, the liberal whites, wanted to make it appear that they knew what was better for Black people than the Black people who were going through it. And so, the, you know, that takes us right up through what I like to refer to as this, this white privilege filter, this lens that white people look through, including especially these woke white folks, to the extent that they are unable to see what's right in front of them. And, and it goes back to the microcosm that is sports, that in essence, you know, you've got, got sports announcers and people who've worked in sports for years and years and years, some of their entire careers there. And so you've got former athletes who've turned broadcasters. And so you've got people who literally see every day the relationship of what it means to be a Black person in these sports. And yet they never find the opportunity to speak up on it or call it out. I mean, we're, and we're not talking about the Black athletes up there, because like I said, that's a whole nother issue. We're talking about the fact that you have these folks who are part of the power structure, these sports sportscasters and other voices for the major sports because they cover them all. They cover the NBA, the NFL, tennis, golf, and yet they never seem to find the inequity, the inequality in the fact that you can be 13, 14 years old and become a professional golfer or a professional tennis player. You can go right out of high school and go to Major League Baseball, which is still primarily white. 
but the two sports that are primarily black, the NFL and the NBA, which also happen to be the largest money producers, are still primarily black, but the management, the ownership, the coaches are still predominantly white to the extent that they are currently, I believe, three black head coaches in the NFL and seven in the NBA. And it's been that way, even though for the last 50 years, 75, 80% of the players have been black. And so these same announcers who sit there week in and week out, who again, my thought is that if you work with someone over and over again, you get to a state of recognizing that they are no different from you, but somehow you're unable to see this imbalance in what counts for the management positions, the thinking positions, even the fact that they're not more black quarterbacks. And so that is what I'm referring to when I talk about this. This white filter is that it's so ingrained, they don't even see it as a imbalance, even when it stares them in the face every day. Yeah, they, they, they seem there seem to be a, a disconnect here when you have the two money producing sports in major college, which are basketball and football. And people don't want to recognize that when you look at these man, these money-making sports, they're, they're dominated predominantly by black people, like black, black males and females. But mainly we're talking about black male sports. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure female basketball makes some money, but it doesn't make the kind of money that you're going to make in men's basketball or, or football. Right. Uh, what would be more interesting to me is if it was reversed, if, if young white males were the predominant folks in those two sports. If you had 70, 80% of white males in those in those money-making sports, what would the conversation be like then? You know, would they be talking about paying these folks? I'm pretty sure a long time ago, we would have came up with some type of formula to compensate young white males if they were the predominant ones in, this, in those two money-making sports. A step further, I have watched how the NBA has evolved over this, this high school rule. And to this date, you know, there's never been a white player who was considered good enough to make the jump from high school to the NBA. And the fact that it's only the black players, I think says something. But I definitely believe, as you pose this the question, Scott, that if you had several white players who had the opportunity to go from high school to the NBA or to, from high school to the NFL, that yeah. they would change those rules. I think you're wrong there, uh, Rod. I think Denny Ferry could have gone straight to uh, <laughs> the NBA. Well, I think Danny Ferry was playing during the time when they could have, and he, he didn't. I do think that, you know, I don't want to be dead a horse, but if Zion, just think if Zion was white, there's no way that they would have that the NF, the NBA would have written some new bylaws. They would have called it the Zion Williams exception or something. But they would have had to have him in the NBA. There's no way he would have played one day of college or college basketball. And you know you have these people who try to to act as though there's some benevolence on the part of the NBA and the NFL saying, well, you know, they're just not ready for the grind and and we're looking out for their best interests when the truth of the matter is what they're looking out for is the racist college system. Because yeah. in a free market system, wh what do we know? We know that there would never be this flood of high school players going into the NBA or the NFL simply because if they weren't a judge to have the talent and ability to play at that level, nobody's going to pay them to do it. And so the fact that you've had just a few that have been able to do it over the years says more than anything about the NBA or the NFL really having the player's best interest at heart. 
No question. What's amazing, though, too, is like you mentioned, the uh, sportscasters, even there have been some uh, some black sportscasters who have drank Kool-Aid and they also are against these black, these athletes at these money producing sports. They're against them getting paid some type of uh, stipend. I don't know if it's because that they feel like the network that they're on, uh, that's their talking point, or is it because they have an issue with the fact that, well, I didn't get paid when I played college. But to think that they actually believe that these folks should be out here making billions and billions of dollars for the NCAA, and they're not seeing the dime, and they're pretending that we're giving them, you know, well, we, we're paying for them. They're getting scholarship. Yeah, but their scholarship is different from a person who gets a chemistry scholarship, an academic scholarship, a music scholarship. They're not held to the same standard. They're not, their time is not controlled the way that the time of these athletes are made. Every minute of the day pretty much is, count, is accounted for. And the rigorous of, of practice and the time that they have to spend in practice, the time that they have to put into the weight room, and the time that they're putting into community service, those same standards are not held across all of the rest of the student body who may be getting scholarships, whether it's academic or some other kind of scholarship. And, and many of these athletes aren't allowed to major in certain right. different subjects. I mean, you, you cannot be on a football scholarship and be an engineer. No. That's just not going to happen. You know, they're going to give you basket weaving or whatever just to keep you eligible to, you know, play. But beyond that, you're not there to get an education. You're there to make money for the university. For the university, exactly. Not just engineering. You can't be in any kind of, like, I played basketball in college, and I couldn't, I went to major, I was doing a double major in electrical and chemical engineering, and I had to change major because of all of the labs that you have. So you can't major in biology, you can't major in chemistry, you can't major in any kind of major where you're going to have to be doing labs, you're going to have to be doing a lot of work after class because you got to practice. Right. So uh, let's just be clear. That is based on the fact that, you know, you just can't maintain that kind of schedule. Not that they will stop you from majoring in those uh, areas, but it's just nearly impossible to do it based on the requirements of the courses and those majors. Right. So, so there's a conflict. In a sense, they do kind of stop you because what happened is you got, you're trying to meet the requirements of the class, but at the same time, you might have a, a weight section, weight room session, or you have a, a practice section or some other session that right. is pretty much 24 hours a day. But that's what I'm saying. It's, it's, it's a, a restriction based on your inability to be able to handle the requirements. It's not like I'm right. saying, it's not like the school says that you can't. Right. Well, yeah, right. So, all right. Well, once again, we've reached the end of another fast moving half hour, and we want to thank you all for listening in. And we look forward to your being with us next week as we drop a new episode next Friday. So again, until the next time, please remember you can always find us on at the Brothers Talk on Twitter, the Facebook group of the same name, the Brothers Talk on Instagram, or if you want to tell us some more in any detail, you can reach us at thebrotherstalk at gmail.com. And so once again, stay tuned for our upcoming television show, the Brothers Talk Show on M24 News on Millennium TV. And until then, do well, because today is the only time we have and we can make up our minds to do it right now.